If a Middle Earth elf lived today in Southern California, how would she celebrate and support the arts, music, and her community? What would Arwen do? Thursdays, 4 to 5 p.m. with me, Tani Tuduvio, on KUCI 88.9 FM and streaming live at KUCI.org. Ellen Salalumen Amentialvo. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. Mari's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit kuci.org slash privacypiracy. Evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. Well, tonight we have a, a really wonderful guest, a gentleman. I've been reading his articles for a long time, not only at the L.A. Times, but previously from the San Francisco Chronicle. And he was, recently wrote an article that I thought I have to get him on the show because he has done such wonderful work with regard to helping people understand privacy and information privacy. So tonight we're interviewing David Lazarus, who is a business columnist. He writes for the L.A. Times. He has a great column called Consumer Confidential. David is business columnist now at the Los Angeles Times, focusing on consumer affairs. His work has resulted in a variety of laws protecting Californians, including a ban on sending voter information abroad and limits on how frequently banks can recycle former customers' checking account numbers. He is a two-time winner of the prestigious National Headliner Award. And among other honors, he's been named Journalist of the Year by both the Northern California Society of Professional Journalists and the Consumer Federation of California. He's previously worked as a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle, and he was a talk show host at KGO Radio. So he's, I'm sure, a lot better than I am at this. And he's been published in a variety of newspapers and magazines, including Fortune, Newsweek, and National Geographic. And, incidentally, he is the author of two books about Japan. One is Japan Seriously, and the other is a collection of short stories called The Secret Sushi Society. Oh, it's making me hungry. He resides in Los Angeles now, from moving down from Northern California, and he lives with his wife and his son, and we're so thrilled that he is here. Thank you for joining us tonight, David. Well, thank you very much for having me, Mari. David, I have to ask you, how is it that you have written these two books on Japan? Well, I lived there. Otherwise, I'd be a total fraud. I was in uh, <laughs> Tokyo for seven years uh, after a uh, two-year stint in Bangkok. And while in Japan, I worked for a bit for the local press for an English-language paper called the Japan Times. 
And then I moved on to the Tokyo Bureau of Bloomberg News, where I took a crash course in business writing and financial journalism. And in the midst of all that, I uh, wrote essays, I wrote magazine articles, and I also wrote uh, quite a bit of short fiction. And all of that found its way into those two books. Wow. So so do you love sushi? <laughs> yes, I do very much. I like all Japanese food, which, considering that I'm married to a Japanese woman, is fortuitous. Okay, so did you learn Japanese so you can talk to her and understand what her family is saying to her? I would say generously that I was conversant when we were there. I could pretty much chit-chat as well as anybody, but there is so much subtlety and nuance in Japanese that I would always be afraid of doing a an interview, especially with somebody like a CEO, without an interpreter around, because I'd miss all the signals. And at this point, I'm so rusty that, God forbid, anybody ever encounters <laughs> me on the street and says, ah, do it, doesn't understand, you're not and then I'm not getting lost. Okay. How about Thai? Did you learn any Thai in Thailand? Oh, my Thai is pathetic. Thank you very much for asking. <laughs> Turns out written Thai is based on Sanskrit. Once I learned that and realized I'm not going to carry the Rosetta Stone around with me, I realized it was a lost cause. Yeah, we've been to Bangkok. That was a fun but wild, crazy place. That What were you doing there? Were you writing there as well? Yes, I was. I was a correspondent for a spell for the Sydney Morning Herald, and uh, then I was an editorial writer, of all things, for the Bangkok Post newspaper. Wow, so you've really been around the world here. You should see my passport. <laughs> now, uh, how come you came down from San Francisco? I remember your articles up there. They were great. What what happened that you moved down to good old Southern California? It's a different culture. Oh, it is. Well, I grew up in Southern California, so it's not like I'm necessarily learning a new language down here, <laughs> though I am wearing gold chains and a velour tracksuit just so I blend <laughs> in. Right. <laughs> but, no, I got that, that golden phone call that, that all journalists dream of. I was mm -hmm. doing my thing up north, and the L.A. Times called one day and said, we're going to be giving more of a consumery focus to our business section. How would you like to be one of the main attractions? And who says no to a call like that? Yeah, exactly. They didn't have to twist my arm all that hard. And for the kind of work I do, which has a, a consumer focus, an advocacy focus, a, a sticking up for the little guy focus, the platform of the L.A. Times is virtually second to none. It's got almost two million readers. It has the ear of everybody in Sacramento, from the governor on down. And for the work I do, you can't get a better venue than this. No, I think it's terrific, and I'm so glad that you're doing this because we need that little guy to get some kind of uh, opportunity to be heard, and, and they do it through you. So well, I was, I was very flattered today after my column ran in the paper. Uh, none other than Secretary of State Deborah Bowen sent me a very nice email telling me how much she likes my work, and boy, I'll tell you, it doesn't get better than that. Oh, and Deborah Bowen was a wonderful privacy advocate when she was senator, so uh, we're She's thrilled. Terrific. Yeah, she is. She's great. Yeah, she and Jackie Spear were, were way out in front on these issues. I know. It was unfortunate about the term limits because, I'll tell you, they, they really... Okay, well, we still have Senator Simidian, thank goodness, out there and really a good privacy proponent, but uh, he's, he's not got too many helpers out there. No, it's true. On the other hand, I've gotten feelers from the staffs of a number of legislators in Sacramento who are taking an interest in privacy and consumer-related issues. So I think we might be pleasantly surprised by the new crop coming up that realizes that not only is this an important concern, but it's a politically advantageous concern as well. Right. So let's get down to a little bit of privacy. You've written a lot about information privacy and technology and how it affects us as consumers and business people. And I have to tell you, all of your articles are great. I love your writing. 
I, I, but I was really attracted by one of your articles, which was entitled, Your Loss of Privacy is a Package Deal. Great, great. Um, why don't you tell us about all these all-you-can-eat packages of voice, television, Internet services? Because um, we're all getting those things in the mail. I have Cox Internet and, you know, cable, and boy, I, they, they are relentless about trying to get my telephone. So tell us about how that is really a threat to privacy. Well, what got me thinking about this was the way the phone companies are moving aggressively into the TV space. Verizon and AT&T are both rolling out video components to what they do. And at the same time, the cable companies are moving into the phone space, adding voice to their otherwise arsenal. And basically, the, the various offerers, cable companies, phone companies, are becoming indistinguishable. Yes, they use different technologies and they have different strong points, but they're offering the same panoply of services. In other words, video, voice, and net. And that is the golden package right now, the bundle, as these guys like to say. And it occurred to me that with all of these big, big companies rolling out these bundles that it's all you can eat. It's basically every single one of your telecommunications needs. What are the privacy ramifications of that? And it's an interesting question because how much do you really want a company to know about you? And in the case of these companies, and a lot of consumers might not think about it, but here it is. They know what you watch. They know who you call. They know where you go on the web. Now, in the past, those various services would have been broken apart into three different providers. And while we all would have said, well, I don't like somebody knowing where I'm surfing on the web or the fact that I'm subscribing to the Playboy channel, or at least it was broken apart. But when you have all of that in one place, the potential is created to, to create a fairly revealing and perhaps alarming profile of all of us as consumers, not least of which it's going to reflect behavior that we have when we think no one is looking, the, the shows that we might tune to, the websites we might visit. And while it all might be fairly innocuous, you also have to wonder to a stranger, how does that make you look? Right. And that got me looking into the privacy policies and the terms of service of the various providers. And it was eye-opening, Mari. I, I had no idea what I was going to find going in. Time Warner Cable was the one with the most red flags attached. And I had to dig deep, deep into their policy. And the thing runs about 3,000 words or so. And you find little things like, for instance, that they not only know who you're calling and when, but they're also tracking, quote, Internet addresses you contact and the duration of your visits to such addresses, which stop and think for a moment what that might mean. It also tracks information about how long you are online and how often you're online. And then one that, that I found very creepy, there's a line in there that Time Warner compiles, quote, information you publish. Hmm. And then you stop and think, well, what is that? I mean, what if I'm blogging? Yeah. What if I'm sending emails through their portal? Right. In theory, all of that is being compiled by the company. And it just makes you wonder, how far does something like that go? What are the limits? And when you talk to regulators, they can't answer that question. This is all new territory. We are now way ahead technologically than we are from a regulation or legislative sense. And so nobody really knows what the parameters is of providing all of these services. 
and all the profiles that they can be compiling on us. I mean, I'm thinking when you're talking about if you have all those services with these companies and they can integrate all of this information into a huge profile about you. And then, of course, if you don't opt out, maybe they'll be selling and sharing that information about you. And maybe may they will. Yeah. Exactly. And in Time Warner's policy, and I couldn't find this in anyone else's, but in Time Warner's policy, it even says that they will maintain information about you as long as you're a subscriber, which I can almost understand. And then, and here, this is a quote, up to 15 additional years. Yeah. And stop and think about that. So I, I cancel my subscription, and they still maintain files about me for 15 years. They told me that this is for tax and accounting purposes. Well, tax and accounting, I know that you can't, you don't need it more than five or seven years for tax and accounting purposes. Well, and the problem, too, is their privacy policy specifies elsewhere that they have tax and accounting needs. It doesn't seem to be about that. It, re it really just makes you wonder what's going on. It's the same thing when we all learned that Google was right. maintaining records of all our searches in perpetuity. And I think a lot of people suddenly became very alarmed about these perennial records of our online habits. Right. And just think about it. I mean, I'm thinking of these ones that are, have profiled us, like, you know, with the cable and the TV and the Internet and the phone. And just think about this. What are, are those in, databases being encrypted? You know, who might have access to that information that isn't authorized, even if, let's say, even if they don't sell it or share it? Sure, but I, I think what really should be the the wake-up call for everybody was the Choice Point episode. Right. For everybody playing at home, that was when we had one of those so-called data brokers right. that was duped by scammers into revealing all sorts of information about people, and nobody really knew about the data brokering industry until this incident, and then we learned that there are these huge companies out there that gather both public and private records and yes. turn it into records are us, one-stop shopping for, say, an employer that wants to do a background check on somebody, or even more alarming, law enforcement that might want to skirt the affidavit process or the subpoena process and simply buy a file right. that's regularly available. I've talked to the guys at ChoicePoint, and they say the U.S. government is their biggest client. Exactly. Uh, of course. And we've had them on the show. We've been, Actually, they have become one of the better information brokers. They've turned over a new leaf. Yeah, <laughs> they it, have. I it, mean, I, I mean, c considering after they got their hands slapped for $15 million, they, they have turned over a new leaf. And I've had the privacy officer in and I've had others. But, but there are myriad data brokers, like you say, that can buy this information. And that's what, you know, I mean, that's bad enough, like you're talking about. You know, I'm worried about, you know, dirty insiders selling it or sharing it or doing whatever they want to with it But and, and unauthorized persons. But you're right. There are there are no limits as to what can be put in these background checks. It's not like the Fair Credit Reporting Act, where we have a right to see this stuff, correct it, make sure it's correct, and limit it who gets access to it. Well, you just have no idea. And that's the context, I think, that makes the information gathering by these media conglomerates so potentially alarming, because the notion that a single company, a single gatekeeper to the telecom networks is overseeing your television habits, your internet habits, your telephone calls, and that information could be used commercially by them. It might not be. You don't know. But the mere fact that it's there in a repository, in a central database, well, 
you know, here we are. Welcome to the 21st century. And I don't have a good answer for that because we all like the convenience of this technology. But the dark side of that is that someone, someone somewhere, is probably going to have access to information about you that you don't want them to know. David, what happened? I know, you know, because you are who you are and they know that you're doing a story, what happened when you spoke to the privacy officers and those people who uh, were able to speak to you about these issues? Because, you know, the reality is, is most consumers don't read these long privacy policies like you're talking about. They just don't, they, it's tiny print, they can't read it on the computer, they're, they're in a hurry to get what they need to get. So they don't read these privacy policies. And the fact that you brought it to a conscious level is great. But what did they tell you when you, when you said, and when you asked these questions? I'm often surprised when I connect with the chief privacy officer at a major company because he or she typically, at least in my experience, doesn't seem to be of a watchdog ilk. Isn't somebody there who gets off in a high dudgeon every time privacy has been violated? Rather, they become sort of the, the apologist-in-chief for any privacy questions. And I'll always put it to such people of, you know, hey, you're a privacy officer. Doesn't this bother you? Doesn't it bother you that information is being maintained on customers or that it says in your privacy policy, as it does in the case of Time Warner, that they reserve the right, quote, to disclose personally identifiable information to others, such as advertisers and direct mail or telemarketers for non-cable purposes. Now, when I talked to the privacy officer at Time Warner, he said, oh, never sell anything to a telemarketer. Yes. I said, no, wait a minute. It's right here in your, in your thing. And he, he looked at his privacy policy and said, oh, okay, then, yeah, we, we, we could do it, but we don't do it. <laughs> and then you say, well, then why, if you don't do it, why do you have it in there? And he says, well, we might do it. And from a consumer's <sighs> point of view, how can you possibly tell the difference? You can't. As long as they're reserving the right to do something like that, for my money, it's as good as doing it. Then the thing that always gets me about privacy officers is when you bring up the whole question of opt-out versus opt-in. And yeah. for, for anyone who doesn't know, opt-out basically means they're going to make you proactively tell them that you don't want your information being shared, as opposed to opt-in, which is the much more consumer-friendly approach, which means they have to ask you first if they can share your information, and if you do not consent, if you do not opt in, then they can't do it. Well, the default setting in corporate America is opt out, meaning if you don't opt out, and they know you're probably not going to, they can do whatever they want. It's a very consumer-unfriendly approach. And whenever I ask a chief privacy officer at any company, why do you do that? Why do you tolerate that? If you are a privacy maven, how could you possibly sign off on opt out? And they always give me a whole bunch of mealy mouth sort of thing. Well, it's industry standard and best practices, and it's just not a good answer. No, because you know the best that isn't best practices. But let me say two things about privacy officers, because I I am a certified information privacy professional. I deal with a lot of privacy officers. I think part of the problem with these privacy officers is a lot of times they don't know what marketing is doing, and we've seen that. And, and they may not know what everybody is doing. Look at what happened with, you know, HP. The privacy office was not aware of what was going on when there was, you know, the uh, pretext calling. So what happens is, is the privacy officer is not put in a priority position. They're not directly reporting to the CEO or the COO. You know what I'm saying? And so they're kind of down on the uh, the totem pole. And unfortunately, 
they are not informed of these things and they aren't given the clout that they should have. And that's that's my experience, to All be right, honest Mari, with you. But that, that means the privacy officer is no better than a shill for the company, and that's unacceptable that's, that's right. from it a is unacceptable. point of view. Yes, it is unacceptable. And Abs- moreover, I, I can tell you this, that if I was made chief privacy officer of some major company, I would make it my business to know these things and to adopt an advocacy position on behalf of privacy rights. You would think that would come with the territory. Yeah, I think that is how a lot of them are feeling that they want to do. And when they get more clout, that's what happens, especially I think that's happening since we've had all these security breaches. I think they're now the privacy officer is starting to get a little bit more clout because if they don't listen to the privacy officer, they're going to end up with egg on their face. But getting back to opt in and opt out, and I agree with you 100 percent, I remember In 1999, I went and I spoke at the White House before the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act was passed, and that was the uh, Financial Modernization Act. In that act, which is federal law, it said that uh, consumers federally would have the right to opt out of having their sensitive information in the financial, you know, financial information shared with other uh, non-affiliates, okay? You could opt out. Then it said for affiliates that we would have no right to opt out of having our financial information sold. Then you remember Jackie Spear, who we were talking about a few minutes ago, if you remember, she had the California Financial Act that that actually went and said that Californians could, um, could make it that companies, financial industry could not sell our information without us opting in with us without us giving pre-approval and that passed and that you know stood up to the constitutional issues however however she also tried to say that we could opt out for sharing with affiliates and that actually federally was deemed uh, preempted so exactly you, that's the point i was about to make yeah. that with the california law it's very strict but it doesn't prevent op- it doesn't prevent sharing among affiliates and when you look at some of the conglomerates that are out there they might have affiliates that run into the dozens. Oh, let me tell you, you know, we refinanced our house and we got had to sign this title company and it said, these are our affiliates. And there were 10 pages of affiliates that were getting my information. Yeah, and you know, it was affiliated with GE. So if you mm-hmm. can imagine how many, I was furious and I wrote a letter and I said, I do not want you to share. But meanwhile, I had gotten off all these pre-approved offer lists. Suddenly, suddenly I started getting dozens and dozens more new ones, even though I had finally gotten off all those lists. So you're right. I mean, it's it really is unfortunate that that Congress did not give us that right to stop our information from being shared with affiliates when now one company could have myriad affiliates. Yeah, but don't lay that just at the doorstep of Congress. Congress was responding to aggressive, even ferocious lobbying by the financial services industry in that case. So if you want to blame anybody for our diluted privacy protections, you look at banks, insurers, mortgage companies, you look at these guys who had a vested interest in making sure that they could share their, your information among themselves and they fought tooth and nail to maintain yes. that right. Yes. Yeah, you're right. But, I mean, again, if, if Congress is the one who finally does the voting, so, you know, if they, if they don't take the money or, <laughs> you know, I, 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 still, you. I, you know, I still say the buck stops with them because I vote for them, and, and that's what needs to happen. But let's get back to this whole trade-off between you were talking about 
the convenience. You know, when I get this thing from Cox, it tells me about all this convenience. Um, what about the trade-off between convenience and privacy? Well, it's a very good question. This technology is so powerful and it's so enabling. There's really no better example than Google, which reinvented the Internet experience for most people. I mean, the web had become anarchic and, and untamable. You just simply could not get anything out of it, at least anything of, of any order or sense. And Google brought it all back into line. It's an astonishing tool at the same time because they own search now, and they do have, I, I believe they're responsible for more than half of all searches on the Internet, imagine what that says about you. And mind you, they might not know that David Lazarus at the L.A. Times, per se, is doing a specific search, but they know it's my computer. They have an IP address, an Internet protocol address, that, with just a very little amount of legwork, attaches itself to my name. So if you are a Justice Department official and you wanted to look into this sort of thing, as the Justice Department did want to do a couple of years ago, well, if you can get records of searches and records of IP addresses, it really won't take a lot of work on your part to connect that to names and real-world addresses, and that's a big fear. Oh, remember that just happened with AOL last year, and that was revealed in the New York Times about how people, you know, they were, uh, people were able to get a hold of those searches and find out, you know, where somebody was searching for maybe a certain kind of medicine, where to get the medicine, and they wanted to find it at a local pharmacy. And, and a that, lot of reporters right. actually did connect those to real right. world people and then yes. called them up and said, I know what you're looking for. That's terrifying. It was. I know Tom Zeller from the New York Times is a friend of mine, and he was on our show, and he had done that. He had written a story about that and called these people and said, these were your searches. And it was terrifying, and it was embarrassing for many people. They don't, Maybe they don't want someone to know about a, a disease that they have or some problem that they have or that they're about thinking about divorce or some kind of problem with their child. Well, it's unfortunate, Mari, that it takes a breach or a major incident of that kind to raise awareness of how vulnerable we all are, but that really is the case. There was a, a situation last year where I had gotten a tip, I was still up in San Francisco, I had gotten a tip that the Indian consulate in San Francisco had left thousands and thousands of visa applications in a recycling dump. Oh. I mean, they, they were all there, just stacks of these papers, and I went out to the dump and I looked at them and I took a few armloads back with me and started <laughs> calling people. And I said, I know your name, I know your address, I know where you work, I know your passport number. Does that scare you? Oh, my goodness. And it, it put the fear of you-know-who into, yes. uh, into all these people. And these aren't just, you know, fly-by-night people. I was talking to the CFO of The Gap. I was talking uh. to Attorney General Jerry Brown's wife. Uh. Uh, and I can tell you this, the Attorney General was very upset about the incident once I let him know that I had his wife's passport application in my hand. Exactly. So it's the, the point I'm making is that you just never know where your information is getting to these days. And in the case of Tom Zeller at the New York Times or myself, it results in a little mischief on our parts, and it's you know harmless and kind of fun. But God forbid it actually gets into the hands of an organized ring of identity thieves. Exactly. And then who knows what's going to happen. And that happens all the time. Or yeah. even terrorists, for that matter. I mean, what I was looking at with names, addresses, and passport numbers, well... Let's just you know game that out. It does. You don't got to be a. You don't got to be Osama bin Laden to figure how that works. Right, and and we know that over half of the 9/11 terrorists had really committed identity theft. So that's not something to laugh at. 
that it's very easy to come into our country and steal somebody's identity and have a, a bad purpose. And the problem, Ari, is this sort of stuff happens every single day. You know, we, we've grown almost inured to the idea of security breaches. About five years ago, I was doing a lot of columns about security breaches. There really wasn't a lot of people in the, in the mainstream press anyway doing privacy and privacy breaches as a going concern. And I would report these things and report these things, and I noticed a tipping point a few years ago where it just suddenly started becoming old hat. Yeah. Editors were starting to shrug, and readers were sort of going with it, and I realized right there that the outrage was gone. Mm -hmm. We had all grown accustomed to the idea that security breaches are a fact of life, and I haven't really backed off from that. They shouldn't ever be a fact of life, but it really does seem that the sense of shock and, and outrage has gone away, and as long as that's the case, you will see no pushes for legislative reforms. You know what it seems to me? I think that people just feel impotent. Um, I think people are still shocked and outraged. They call me about it all the time. I think they're upset about it, but I think they feel so impotent that it's totally beyond our control. If TJ Maxx is going to have, you know, uh, millions and millions of credit information on file and have it stolen and not encrypted, or, you know, if a hospital is going to lose our information on, on the Internet or someone steal it. I think people feel very angry. And I also think the problem is, is that we have had lawsuits against companies for uh, information being stolen, even Choice Point. All right. And though if you were not a victim, the judges were saying there was absolutely no harm. And I remember being an expert on a couple of these cases saying, wait a minute. You, this is similar to asbestos. If you're exposed to asbestos, you are, with your social security number and all your sensitive information is exposed and in the hands of unauthorized criminals, then you have to constantly be vigilant. And the court said, unless you're really a victim, we're not going to do anything. So I think that's part of it. Mari, I know this all too well because some years ago my own identity was stolen and I could not get law enforcement involved with it to save my life. And so I ended up investigating my case myself, tracked down my perpetrator, and got him arrested, Right. got him convicted, got him deported, right. and now he's sunning himself back in his native Jamaica. But the problem is he still knows my social, Right. and he will know my social for the rest of my days, and that's going to hang over me from now on. You have to be ever vigilant. Me too. I was a victim back in 1996 and and my my uh, you know imposter was a meth addict and who knows how many people she sold my stuff to, right? I mean, we know that they share this stuff even in jails. So, you're right. We have to be ever vigilant, but I think the fact that that the uh, judicial system is not recognizing that there is a harm if your social security number and sensitive data is exposed. Even our security breach legislation is a really only a notification statute. Well, right? I've, got a, I've got a good answer for you. Obviously, <laughs> it wouldn't affect you and I in the case of an individual doing harm to an individual. But if we really wanted to go after corporate security breaches, here's your answer. A $1,000 fine for every single name affected. You can be damn sure after the first $10 million fine that right. companies throughout the world would be stepping all over themselves to make sure that their breaches were impregnable. Right. And, and, you know, in our security breach notification law, we, we even gave them the carrot that if they encrypt the computer data, if it's, uh, you know, acquired by an unauthorized person, they don't have a duty to notify. 
So, you know, you would think that there would be more companies that would be encrypting, yet we're still hearing every day. I think we're up to over 170 million uh, records have been, uh, you know, uh, acquired by unauthorized persons, and those are only the ones that are publicized. Companies tell me that it's too much hassle to encrypt. Right. Because it just it means that their employees have to do a few more keystrokes, and they just can't afford that. Boy, I'll tell you, every time I hear that, my mouth just falls open. I know. We're speaking with David Lazarus, who is a wonderful columnist with the L.A. Times. He has a column called Consumer Confidential, and it he is very knowledgeable about privacy, consumer uh, advocacy, and really trying to help those of us to understand what's really going on, great investigative reporter. So let's let's go now to, most people don't realize, for example, that the U.S. Patriot Act, um, that that the government had gone to many phone companies. I mean, they, maybe they read about it, but they're so busy with other things, they didn't realize that, that the government had gone to U.S. Uh, phone companies and internet providers to get data, and they did it without, uh, you know, even getting any kind of a warrant. So I, I know that a federal judge has shot that down recently, thank God. But what are your thoughts about government? You started to talk about it before with ChoicePoint being able to buy information. What are your thoughts about that with regard to the U.S. Privacy Act? Well, in the case of what you're referencing there, I mean, there were, there's a number of very astonishing elements to that, not least of which the Bush, Bush administration's desire to spy on Americans without following due process. And we do have due process. Due process. The, the administration insists, look, it's terrorism. You don't got a lot of time to pussyfoot around with the courts, and so you got to blow full speed ahead. We, we actually have mechanisms in place for that. It's called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, right. FISA, which creates this clandestine, super-secret court structure that issues subpoenas in the cases of national security. And there is a contingency in the FISA system where law enforcement can go do its wiretaps and get a retroactive subpoena after the fact. So it's not a matter of sitting around hoping that you're going to catch those terrorists red-handed and, oops, we missed them again. No, FISA is prepared for all of that, and the Bush administration consciously chose to do an end run around FISA, and that's bad enough. But here's the thing that really gets me, is the administration went knocking at the doors of all of our major telecommunication companies and almost all of them, we don't really know which ones specifically, but we've seen intimations as to which ones, but virtually all of them, when approached with that offer from the administration of, hey, we'd like to connect wires to your servers and tap phone calls and tap your email traffic, and all of our phone companies said, okay, yeah. I don't see any problem with that. <laughs> you, you don't have a subpoena? Well, I trust you. You're the government, and that's outrageous. Yeah. I, I mean, it's phenomenal. Yep. And, you know, when they were getting all that, gathering all that information without a warrant, what scares me, if you think about it like this, is then they haven't really focused in on those that they really have enough reasonable suspicion to even do this. So then you might miss some of the real bad guys. You know what I mean? If you're, if you're at least you're getting a FISA warrant, you've had to at least gather enough evidence to show that there is reasonable cause to believe that there's some crime here or there's some terrorism. But if you're just gathering indiscriminately, then you can't even focus on the right uh, people. It's just drift net fishing. It's the government accessing information that it has no right to access. And obviously, if you're in the spying business, 
you want to get as much information as you can. So I don't begrudge the NSA or the CIA or the FBI its desire to plug its wires into the phone network. I, you know, of course they want to do that, but we have systems in place. We have checks and balances in place to protect us. Civil liberties are important. They are one of the bedrocks of being U.S. citizens. And what we've seen in recent years is a steady erosion of our civil rights, and perhaps no less alarming from the little guy's point of view is this sense that, oh, well, what are you going to do? That's what the big guys do. That's what the government does. And as we were talking about before with just people growing inured to the idea of privacy breaches, we're, we're almost to the point now where the outrage is gone every time we learn about yet another civil liberty falling by the wayside or being under attack. And the email I get is constantly lamenting big brotherism and, and the idea that governments or corporations are playing such underhanded and overarching roles in the lives of consumers and taxpayers and ordinary people but what do you do about it? Who do you turn to? If the government itself is one of our major offenders in this regard, who do you turn to for recourse? You turn to David Lazarus. That's who you turn to. There you go. (laughs) No, but David, I have an idea. You get all these emails, right? I mean, you've told me you get thousands of emails. People comment on on your wonderful articles. Why don't you do like the consumer, um, Consumers Union does, and they have a sample letter that people can send to their uh, various senators and congresspeople, state and federal level, and then you you put in your name and you put in your email address and you, you can change whatever it says on there to meet your concerns, and then you push the button and it automatically goes to whatever your zip code is. Well, I've certainly seen things like that, Mari, and and I appreciate the effectiveness of it, but don't you think there's something kind of tawdry and cheap about spamming our legislators over issues that we really do care about? I know when I get spam, I ignore it. So if this is the equivalent of of something trying to sell me Viagra, except I'm sending (laughs) it to some legislator saying I care about privacy... You know, I, I just know that they're going to be clicking that delete button as fast as I do every well, time I get one of those but, Viagra ads. But, but, but you know that I don't agree with you because I go to these websites and I send emails to various legislators, you know, because now by, when you send mail, it can't really go there because of all the anthrax, you know, problems. Mm-hmm. So they, they really do look at some of these emails. Or if you call, you know, even if you call. Uh, it, it, it helps. Just make a phone call. But I think they'd rather get an email than a call because I think they just, a lot of their people who answer the phone just I pretty much brush I, off. I think for selfish reasons, I think one of the most effective tools consumers and taxpayers have is sending letters to the media because yes. that way you get your voice out there on the bully pulpit, unfiltered, and by God, you can be sure that legislators read the letters columns right. even if they don't read their email. And that's a, a good tool that's open to people. True, but I don't I don't know how many of those are going to, you know, I mean, I read the Times and I read the Register, and there aren't that many letters to the editor. And I've written letters to the editor, and they don't always get in. So I, I think... I say, email me, and I'll write a column about it. Okay. Now, see, that's why I said, who do we turn to? We turn to David Lazarus, which gives me a good opportunity to introduce you again. We are speaking with David Lazarus, who is going to be our fearless leader here with regard to our p- consumer privacy. He writes a wonderful column for the Los Angeles Times called 
Consumer Confidential. And also, if you go to latimes.com and you look up David Lazarus, you can see his previous columns and check on them as well. Now, you also wrote a, let's switch gears again, you wrote a, an article, an interesting one, called Corporate Propriety Yields to Free Speech. This one was really scary, too, because there's no law that protects us. Tell us about the story where Verizon Wireless prevented a, a, a pro-choice group from being able to send emails to its uh, uh, group members. Well, that, that's exactly right. It's yet another one of these examples that we seem to be seeing more and more of, of the gatekeepers of our information networks showing themselves to be, well, biased in the information they're going to let get across their networks. And in this case, Verizon Wireless, some, some drone at Verizon Wireless was looking at applications for bulk texting. And the way that works is if, if any organization is going to be sending out lots and lots of text messages to its members, they have to apply to get a five-digit code from the various network operators so that it can get past the various spam filters. Okay, I can understand that system. Well, right. NARAL, which is a pro-abortion group, applied Pro-choice, pro-choice. I'm sorry, my bad. Yes, right. Well, no, not my bad. It is pro-abortion. <laughs> Let's not get caught up in silly language. Well, it's pro-choice. Well, but the, okay, well, that's, yeah. that's a debate for another time. But, you know, <laughs> one of my problems with the whole state of political discourse is we're afraid to actually call things for what they are. And I am pro-choice. I am pro-abortion. It just sounds like when you say pro-abortion, you're sounding like you're saying pro-murder. You're not saying that. So well, I'm pro-choice. Let's not color right. the language. But well, anyway, I, I, Mari, that's okay, a different topic. Ahead. Okay, go ahead. So we're talking about Verizon Wireless, and somebody right. there sees this application from NARAL yep. asking to be sent out the message, and you know NARAL is the NARAL Pro Choice America, and this person deemed NARAL's messages, pro choice, pro abortion, to right. be too controversial, right? And rejected the application. In other words, said you can't send your messages over our network. Well, as soon as this surfaced in the media, Verizon Wireless backed right off and said, "Oops, our bad." my mistake. In fact, when I talked to the company, they explained that if you went by the letter of their policy, whoever made that decision made the right decision, but it was a bad policy. And that's not a very good answer, but <laughs> it, it suggests that they're going to change their bad policy, and I guess that's a good thing. But, you know, we've been seeing more and more of this. I mean, we had the Verizon Wireless episode recently. We had AT&T censoring some anti-Bush, can I say anti-Bush, yes, uh, yes, yes. comments made yes. by uh, the rock group Pearl Jam during an online webcast because they deemed it, I guess, I, you know, anti-Bush or too political or, or whatever. But what business do they have censoring people? Yeah. And yet increasingly we're seeing these incidents time and time again where the gatekeepers of our information networks are acting as if they can decide what passes and what doesn't. And, you know, you got to wonder how free free speech is in the digital era. And I don't think we really know where the limit is. I know. And it's it's almost scary because sometimes you you have this speech on blogs. I've seen some blogs that have been really pretty hateful. Now, do they go to the issue of inciting to commit murder? I mean, you know, can that, I don't know. 
But I think that's a problem also. If you are, for example, if, you know, the LA Times or the Register or any of these, you know, local newspapers or whoever has blogging on their websites, if something comes on there, are they, <clears throat> are they going to say we are not going to oversee this or we are going to oversee this? I mean, where does that delicate balance go? Well, all too often, Mari, most people don't even know what the rules of the road are because the service contracts that the information gatekeepers inflict upon us as consumers are so voluminous and so legalistic and so indecipherable that you can't tell. Recently, I was looking at the 14,000-word customer service contract that AT&T uses for its internet broadband service, and buried (laughs) deep within there was actually a line that says they can cancel your subscription as an AT&T member if you do anything that harms, quote, the name or reputation of AT&T or any of its business partners. Right, I read that. So, so in and other it words, turns if out you, Verizon had the uh, same thing. So if you blog and say, Verizon has lousy service or whatever. You're you gone, out of the pool. Yeah. Get out of here. But <laughs> you can't say that. And, you know, on the one hand, well, you know, it's kind of amusing that these, my, these telecom behemoths are so thin-skinned that you're not allowed to bruise their delicate feelings but at the same time, wait a minute. You know, this isn't national security we're talking about now. Right. You know, this, this isn't you contrary. This is just people talking about you. And if you can't stand the heat, get out of the server. That's what I say. Right. And the fact that they don't want to learn about what what's people are complaining about. You know, I mean, that's that's pretty unfortunate to and, not you know, even want to To both companies' credit, when I called them on this, they said, oh, well, you know, we, we we sure didn't know that was in there, those darn lawyers. <laughs> and they both pledged that they would take out this kind of language from their contracts and assured me they would never, ever countenance censoring people. But the mere fact that language like that creeps into these contracts, uh, you know, you never know. And, and how vigilant can people really be? Nobody I know reads these things. No. I do it because I get paid to do it. Exactly, exactly. They're so time-consuming to read. And for most people, they can't even read them. And I'm an attorney, and sometimes I'm confused even reading them. So, you know, it's, it is. It's insane. So I wonder if anybody really was um, denied service for anything that they might have blogged. The companies say no. The companies insist they never enforced it. But who knows? You know, we, we, we can't really say for sure. So, you know, we'll we'll take that at face value and give them the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, the the real eye-opener here is the mere fact that things like that pop up. And as we go forward, as new technologies get rolled out, as these digital high-speed broadband services become more and more sophisticated, to the point where it really does become like having Hal in your house from 2001, (laughs) and you come home and say, open the pod bay doors, Hal, well, you know, at that point, Nobody's going to know what the rules of the road are, and you probably have lost control anyway. I think this is the time where consumers and users of this technology need to step up and say, here's how far we're going to let you go, and here's what we want to know what the rules are, and for goodness sakes, make it transparent. I mean, if you're going to set rules, at least let us know what the rules are. Exactly, exactly. I think the problem is we don't have enough journalists like you that are writing these articles. I mean, if if you're not getting the L.A. Times and you live in, you know, Wisconsin or something, and you're not getting, uh, I don't know if your stuff is syndicated all over, is it? Is it? 
through? Actually, it goes out on the wires. I'm amazed at the little papers and things that oh, pick it they? up and people send me emails. It's really oh, nice. Good, good, because I was thinking, you know, California, we really are privacy conscious. I mean, we, we are, we have a, we even have a right to privacy in our Constitution, which is not in the federal Constitution. And we have a, an Office of Privacy Protection, which has just been elevated now with our uh, new legislation. So, I mean, we already are more privacy conscious than the rest of the country. So they already think we're nuts. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I'm glad to hear that your information is getting out there because that that you are the only ones who are saying these kinds of things. People just don't get it. Well, well, thank you. It's radio shows like yours as well that get the word out so we can do mutual admiration society there. <laughs> but, you know, you're right to, the, to an extent that this isn't really a mainstream media issue per se. We right. see, you know, instances where, you know, TJ Maxx or whatnot, where it surfaces up and maybe even makes the front page of a number right. of papers or makes the evening broadcast. Yeah. But by and large, privacy is one of those kind of victimless sort of crimes out there right. that the media doesn't really get its hands around. And that's why I think it's incumbent on each of us as individuals to not just be vigilant on our own behalf, but to also get the word out among ourselves and to our lawmakers that this is an issue that really matters. Exactly. You know, um, the only time it really, really services when we talk about identity theft, you know, we had 15 million new victims last year, and I think that is the, the, the sexy thing that brings privacy to the, you know, to the limelight. And that's, that's what, uh, unfortunately, that's the fallout of a lack of privacy. I wanted to ask you, because I was interviewed on KGO several times, what kind of a show did you have on KGO? That was up in San Francisco, right? It was. It was a rollicking good show, Mari. <laughs> I bet it was. So did you talk about these kinds of issues, consumer stuff, or what was your show? I did from time to time, but it was basically straight news talk. I, would, oh. I had three hours a week, uh, every Saturday from 4 to 7, and yeah. I would just pick my topics, pick my guests, and try to make a show that would be lively and also play to the fact that this would be a time of the week when people didn't necessarily want a whole lot of, you know, bad news. I discovered clearly <laughs> that Iraq, for instance, did not work right, as a right. topic at that hour. No, they don't want to hear about it. They heard about it all week. Yeah, but on the other hand, pocketbook issues or lifestyle issues or, yeah. or things like that would work a little better. I also did fill-ins regularly for the, uh, for the varsity team that were, uh, you know, the host during the week. And that was also a lot of fun because, you know, th these were really big audiences. KGO is the number one radio station in all of Northern California. And, you know, it's fun. I, I, it's not journalism. And so it's a whole different toolkit. And I yeah. very much enjoy the craft of journalism and the calling and the passion that has to go into it. And radio isn't that. It's, it's an entertainment-based medium, first and foremost. But if you can get some information across in the process and maybe have a little fun, well, heck, you can't beat that. Right, right. Well, you know, our, I don't know. Our, ours is a kind of a serious issue, but I think it, it is kind of the issue that's so insidious that hopefully people find it interesting Well, to this is one to. of those important issues that touches everybody, and that's why I exactly. think privacy is such a, an important going concern because it's not like writing about fuel economy, for instance, or, or other such things that might touch some people but not other people. Instead, you're talking about something that touches literally everyone and so it behooves people to take an interest because if you don't take an interest in your privacy nobody will right 
That kind of gets back to one of the articles that I wrote about. You were very brave to expose a, a health problem that you have that I'm not going to expose unless you want to. Oh, go ahead. I, no. I've only <laughs> shared it with 2 million LA Times <laughs> I readers. I know it. I know it. I know it. But I think it was it was, uh, it was was very touching. And I, I also have diabetes in my family. I didn't. I don't have it, thank God, yet. But you had, why don't you talk about that and what you learned about health care and some of the startling stuff. I thought that was a great, you did several articles on medical and medical privacy. Let's kind of share your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, it was a bit of a shock. Uh, like you, I've had a lot of diabetes in my family. My father is diabetic, my brother, my aunt, my uncle, and I pretty much thought I had dodged that bullet. I'm in my mid-40s and I don't drink, don't smoke, live healthy, pretty good shape. You know, I thought, great, you know, I skirted that and at the beginning of this very month, on October 1st, a day that will live in infamy, yeah. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And I asked the doctors, I said, why me? Why now? And they basically said, look, it was a genetic time bomb that was just waiting to go off, and it went off now. We can't say why. Maybe it was the stress of the move down to L.A., the stress of the new job, but it was going to happen. Yeah. It was going to happen at some point. And the first few days were just frantic, trying to scope out this new landscape and also, you know, remedy my health as quickly as I could. And, um, you know. Well, at least you had, you had family members who had been through it, so you knew that, and you knew a little bit about it. That's true. I, I mean, it's not like I didn't know of the disease, but it's not until somebody tells you, oh, and by the way, you've got a life-altering chronic disease that will never go away, and you'll be taking five insulin shots a day for the rest of your life. That's the wake-up yeah, call. Yeah, yeah. That's what happened to me. And to be honest, I'm still coming to terms with that. I try to, to be as upbeat and, and forward-thinking as I can. But, you know, I'll get into my little moments of self-pity from time to time and think, my God, I'm five shots a day for the rest of my life? And, oh, my goodness. But, you know, never mind that. What, what really was revealing when this happened was on, on the day of my diagnosis, my primary care doctor said, he calls me up. He says, I got your blood work back. You tested positive and you need to see a specialist. And he referred me to what he said was one of the best guys in L.A. who agreed to see me that very night. And I go in, and I'm, of course, you know, scared. The bejeepers are scared right. out of me. I don't know right. what to do. And this guy sits down with me and says, I'm going to help you, but you need to know I don't take insurance. Oh, that's, that's so like scary. That's scary. Clunk. I mean, that kind of <laughs> thing just drops on the floor and sits there. Right. And... If I were to stay with this doctor, it would have cost me hundreds of dollars for every single visit. And as I've since learned, you're in constant communication with your diabetes doctor, at least at the beginning where I am now. Right, so to get that kind of thing can right. bankrupt you. Ugh. And so on the fly and with my blood sugar level four times normal, right. I had to find another doctor on my own, which wow. is insane. I mean, it borders on madness that somebody right. with this diagnosis and this current state of health. In right. other words, you're not stabilized. You're not thinking clearly. Right. And I'm thrown into the system, and I essentially had to pull a name out of a hat. I mm. went to my insurer's website where they had this vast directory of thousands of names, right. and I just picked one. Uh. And that's not a good way to, to deal with something like this. And I saw him a couple of times, and, you know, it wasn't a perfect fit. He was a bright guy. He knew his stuff, but he was kind of lean toward this incredibly monastic diet that he thought might arrest mm. things before I started insulin. And 
every other diabetic I knew said, you got to be on insulin. You got to do it quick. Yeah. And that's what led me to UCLA and to the uh, Gonda Goldschmidt Diabetes Center that's there. And thank God I found my way there and fell into terrific hands. Uh, I have just a wonderful doctor there who within 24 hours of of meeting me had me on insulin. I'm both fortunate and unfortunate enough to say. And I've got a whole team of people, a dietitian, an educator, and uh, you know all these guys who are going to try and help me along, and that's me. But you know what? What's really eye-opening here, Mari, is if that's my story, and I'm and relatively stable, yes. and I'm relatively well insured. What about the 47 million Americans who do not have health insurance? Yes, yes. What about the seven million Californians who do not have health insurance? Right. This is a chronic disease for which the costs, even after insurance, run into the thousands of dollars a year. And that's what happened, like if you remember, and this kind of is a little bit off, but not really, you know, when we had the bankruptcy uh, legislation that was being looked at, a lot of the people who were going bankrupt was because of health care, because they had spent all their money on their cancer, their diabetes, whatever it was, and it really wasn't that they were just malingerers. No, medical and divorce are the two biggest reasons for bankruptcy. Right, right, and so, you know, when you're talking about this, it can devastate people. They can lose their houses. They can lose everything that they own. Well, people who read my column regularly know that I'm a real advocate of what's known as single-payer health care. That basically, it's, it's Medicare, not to put too fine a point on it. It means that the insurance system, not health care per se, because you still have private doctors, private nurses, private practice, but insurance is run by a central government-run program, which is basically what Medicare is. We, just, we have to wait till we're 65 now to get into that. But it's the system that's in place in every other industrialized democracy in the world, except for us. We instead, we have employer-based health care with private insurers. And, you know, it's just a historical accident. During World War II, Congress placed a cap on wages to keep inflation in check, but it told employers, look, if you need to attract people, you know, women or whoever else is available, to come and work for you, well, you can offer them whatever perks you want. And employers at that point started offering health benefits because they couldn't offer wages, health benefits to get people through the door to work during World War II. Right. And by the 1950s, employer-based health care became the norm in the United States. And just as freeways were adopted by L.A. as the way to do transportation for time immemorial, well, we've seen in ensuing decades that the freeway systems are letting us down. We did not prepare for what would come in our current situation. We did not invest enough in infrastructure or public transportation, so now we're, now we're totally stuck. Well, it's the same thing with health care. We put all our, our focus on our eggs in the private insurance basket, and costs are now getting away from us rising by double digits every year. The number of uninsured is increasing every single year. This system is failing us. Yeah, it's broken. And and we only have a couple of minutes. And look at the system of medical privacy. That's a whole nother ball of wax because when you go to your doctor and you think you're going to have confidentiality and you see that privacy policy, which is really a disclosure policy, all of your information is going to be shared. Sure, and they hand it to you on a clipboard when you are at your most vulnerable, and you're signing papers. You'll sign anything at that point. I mean, you know, you want to see a doctor. They're handing you papers. You're signing papers, and one of them is 
the authorization to share your information. You know, there's an interesting trend there where the Bush administration has been pushing for medical records to be put into digital format right. so that they could be accessed more easily by healthcare providers and not, not least of which insurers. And on the one hand, that's a good thing because you can see the efficiencies that such a system would create. Also, I would love also, it if my healthcare well, yeah, would, and would the, follow that. And the other issue is, God forbid we had a, an earthquake or the Katrina. I mean, that is an advantage if that happens and then Absolutely. you can get access. But here's the other side. The hackers. dark side. It's the, the dark. choice point scenario. Yes. Again. What happens when hackers, and you know they will, start accessing the system? Well, there's going to be things that a lot of us don't necessarily want getting out there. I mean, in my case, I say it on the radio, so I don't care. But there's going to be people with AIDS or people with sexual diseases or, you know, whatever. And, you know, that's the stuff. And that's the dark side of this. And we should be having an enormous focus right now on encryption technology and hardened servers for this next generation of data that's going to be kept online. Yeah. Now, Lloyd says it is time to go. You're wonderful. We're going to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us, David Lazarus, wonderful journalist. And uh, we will make sure that we read your column, Consumer Confidential. Thank you for joining us. Good night. Pleasure. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on Privacy Piracy. Visit our website, KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Thank you, Lloyd. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.